Welcome back to our second episode of Take It or Leave It. I'm Meg Toth, and I'm joined by my colleague, friend, and wonderful co-host, Josh Seidman, for our second episode, which means we've officially made it through the first episode. Welcome back. <laughs> well, welcome back. And, and, they, and they still want us back for another one, huh? I, I guess we're doing something right over here. Or maybe no one's really paying much attention to us just yet. But either, either way, we're back for episode two. Now, it's been another long year for sure, but plenty of exciting moments, and hopefully, maybe, the best is yet to come. I'm thinking about you, Matrix 4. Please don't let us down. (laughs) Seems like we may diverge in our show movie preferences, since you're not watching (laughs) Only Murders in the Building, and I'm not watching Matrix. But, um, you know, I'm just excited that it's uh, appropriate for me to be watching The Holiday on repeat. I can't get enough of Cameron Diaz. But we definitely can't agree that 2021 has had its ups and downs and, and sort of kept us all quite, quite busy. Yeah, I, I, for sure. And I, you know, I think we can agree, too, that the thought of us hosting a podcast is really very surprising, uh, even, even with episode two going on as we speak. But what a truly fantastic first episode we had. And we have another amazing topic planned for today. Also, for the record, The Holiday, very solid movie choice. So we do align just a a little bit there. You know, can't go wrong with Jude Law and his Mr. Napkin head face thing that he does with his kids. Really one of my favorite parts of that movie. It's uh, so anyway, if folks haven't seen it, definitely worth checking it out. Yeah, gotta love Jude Law. And I'm equally as excited for today's episode as, you know, I was for our last, since we will be continuing our discussion regarding accommodations for the COVID-19 vaccine. To remind our listeners, last episode, we discussed the evolving landscape of religious accommodations with our expert colleague, Don Soloway. And now this episode, we'll be exploring medical accommodation requests and how employers are evaluating and processing these requests. Although most employers were familiar with and regularly handled medical accommodation requests before the vaccine, unlike religious accommodations, medical exemption requests for the COVID-19 vaccine do still pose many unique challenges, especially in light of the conflicting medical opinions regarding contraindications and who really can and can't, medically speaking, get the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, unique workplace considerations, practical and administrative challenges, some novel legal issues. And that pretty much sums up the lease of absence management and accommodation space over the last few years and why we started Take It or Leave It in the first place. Today, we have the honor and pleasure of being joined by one of our firm's top advisors on all things related to the COVID-19 vaccine, including medical accommodations, and that is our colleague and friend, Kristen McGurn. Kristen is a partner in our Boston office. She's an experienced litigator whose knowledge spans federal employment law, analogous state common law and statutory claims, including Title VII, the ADEA, FMLA, ADA, FLSA, civil and equal rights, fair employment practices, and wage payment claims. She counsels and defends scores of employers in many business sectors with an emphasis on matters affecting the healthcare and pharmaceutical industries and experience in financial services, tech, retail, and hospitality industries, and it's been helping employers around the country develop and roll out vaccine policies and processes to address medical accommodations. Kristen, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with both of you, Meg and Josh, to participate in your podcast. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's so great to have you, and, and thanks for putting up with our corny <laughs> jokes at the beginning. I got, <laughs> beginning. I got to watch. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So if you wouldn't mind, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and experience with medical accommodations in the workplace and sort of how you've generally been helping clients with these accommodations related to the vaccine. 
Yeah. So like, as you said, I mean, this is, you know, to some employers, this is not terribly unfamiliar terrain. I think folks were thrown off their game a little bit by the religious accommodations in the sense that in that milieu, folks were much less familiar with how to roll up their sleeves and really dig in because those types of requests prior to the pandemic were much less frequent, whereas the medical accommodation process is, is a bit more familiar generally. But what we're doing at Cypharth, as you guys know, is helping employers comply with the ADA in this pandemic space of trying to determine whether a particular medical accommodation must be granted by developing workflows and process maps to ensure that the analysis is COVID-specific, which we think is really important, but to help employers intake those request forms, analyze them, and seek clarification when warranted before finally helping recommend decision-making on approvals and denials. We also help employers set their employee expectations by talking about what it takes to submit a request for a medical accommodation, what kind of medical certification forms are going to be uh, approvable or, or considered, and then to the extent that someone, an employee, presents with a disability and remains qualified to perform their essential functions but has a condition that's contraindicated for a particular vaccine, can they be accommodated without an undue burden on the business? Is a deferral of their vaccination warranted for some reason that the CDC would bless? You know, is there some other category of condition that warrants further communication with the employee and their healthcare provider to determine whether the request can be approved? So we're navigating this terrain with employers all the time in the COVID space and, you know, leveraging the workflow processes that we're very familiar with in this area. That's amazing, Chris. I mean, it sounds like you guys just have a little bit of your plate full, really not too much going on there at all. I'll say to your point, I mean, uh, about really the moving kind of shifting landscape, all the ways we're helping helping clients navigate the, the, these changes. You know, when we're thinking about the CDC and their guidelines, those have been constantly changing and evolving in terms of what medical conditions and disabilities actually contraindicate someone from receiving the COVID-19 vaccine. You know, what, what are some of the most common types of medical conditions or disabilities that you're seeing workers you know, raise when they're requesting a medical accommodation from the vaccine? Yeah, so you raise a good point. It's it's not always the ones that the CDC thinks are contraindicated, right? So we are getting lots mm-hmm. of employees submit requests that are based on, you know, generalized anxiety, which is really not specific to the vaccine or generalized fear of needles, which really probably isn't sufficient, uh, isn't sufficient. You know, lots of folks coming forward with allergies to um, certain things, maybe components of a different sort of vaccine or one of the vaccines, the J&J perhaps, but not the component parts of the MNRA, mRNA vaccines rather. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of folks submit these anxiety and allergy based medical requests for vaccine avoidance. We're also seeing autoimmune conditions very frequently coming forward. And, you know, that requires oftentimes more clarification from the healthcare provider, the treating physician, to determine whether a particular autoimmune condition experienced by this particular employee does in fact result in a contraindication to get the vaccine. Because as you know, the CDC, its guidance would suggest that most folks with autoimmune conditions are the first ones who should be going out to get the vaccine. So, you know, as you said, it is a changing, evolving landscape. Uh, Many employers are really tethering their decision-making very closely to what the CDC is asserting as a contraindication to the vaccine and changing, honestly, those criteria as the CDC has made its own scientifically-based 
changes. We're also seeing lots of employees come forward with um, requests for deferral or exemption based on pregnancy or breastfeeding or the fact that they're trying to conceive children. And that does pose some thorny questions for employers and is, you know, kind of being treated, uh, handled, I would say, uniquely in that respect. And again, because to your point, the CDC has changed its own guidance in that respect. So we've seen that change over time post-pandemic as well. Very interesting. So it sounds like one of the unique situations that has presented itself to employers through the you know, COVID vaccine accommodation process is employers dealing with conflicting information from the CDC and from treating healthcare providers. Prior ADA discussions, we weren't you know, reading what the CDC said about some of these conditions. What are you sort of seeing in terms of the approach that employers are taking when an employee presents a legitimate medical certification from a healthcare provider that clearly conflicts with the CDC guidance or guidelines? You know, are they pushing back? Are they are they not pushing back? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I guess I would have to say in my experience, it is employers will reach their own conclusions about how to drive their process and, and how, how to construct their workflow. And some certification forms submitted with an employee's medical request do very much suggest that the medical community differs on when a vaccine should be avoided and, you know, regardless of what the CDC might say. Most employers are demanding a legitimate certification by a treating physician. We certainly see some requests come forward with a certification that is not submitted by their treating physician specific to their medical condition. So in many jurisdictions, doctor's licenses are implicated if they're not providing a certification form for someone who's in treatment with them and not complying with their medical ethics when filling that form out. So employers, I think, are taking care to focus on what does the form actually look like, who's submitting it, is it legit to begin with? And then, as I said, you know, I think many employers are sticking very close to the CDC contraindications. So, you know, some who are receiving certifications that are not tethered to a CDC contraindication are seeking more clarification from the healthcare provider to determine for themselves whether the condition that's articulated by the medical provider really amounts to a CDC contraindication. Some, you know, I would say other employers are maybe sticking less close or giving more credence to a treating physician's medical certification, but I would say certainly that provides, when, when no contraindication is on the face of the form, in most cases we are seeing some follow-up for clarification purposes. You know, if, for example, someone asserts an allergy to some vaccine, let's say a flu vaccine, we know the components of these two vaccines, the J&J and the two Pfizer and Moderna, are very different from the flu components. So the question then becomes, is this really a contraindication to one of these three vaccines or all of them? And so many employers are talking to the treating physician about, is this person an allergist? Should you go see an allergist to determine whether the vaccine is actually contraindicated? What component parts are really of concern and contraindicated for you at this time? You know, I would say similarly, we're seeing common autoimmune disorders that show up on an employee's request form, including lupus, Bell's palsy, Guillain-Barre, rheumatoid arthritis, all that the medical community might differ about whether the vaccine is contraindicated in that circumstance. And so the CDC, of course, has come out and, as I mentioned, encouraged those with many of those with autoimmune conditions to get vaccinated because the fear of a serious infection from COVID is worse than the vaccine itself. So that's another moment where many employers would be looking to communicate with the employee about objective questions about whether the vaccine is contraindicated and following up with a treating physician to to make a further analysis in that circumstance. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, incredibly insightful, Kristen. And it's nice to hear, I mean, I think a few things. Employers are varying in in terms of their responses with some pushing back harder than others, the type of questions that they're following up with uh, when they do want to push back. You know, one kind of follow-up related to that is since a lot of employers, you know, are not healthcare providers, have you seen certain companies rely on company doctors or, I mean, I guess maybe hire company doctors if they don't have them yet and then rely on them? turn to their, you know, disability programs, third-party administrator, insurance carrier, or maybe reach out to, you know, outside counsel, engage with them for guidance and assistance in, in working through these accommodation requests. I definitely have, and it's part of the process map that we promote and sort of would suggest that workflow. It's really important to make sure that you're leveraging the processes that are, you know, already in place, that perhaps your TPA, the third-party administrator for your disability programs, has already set up to undertake this very process to, you know, ensure that a particular medical request under the ADA is analyzed expertly and appropriately and thoroughly. So, you know, I've certainly seen healthcare providers and folks in the life sciences space, for example, or pharmaceutical companies who have infectious disease experts on staff bring them in to this process and and leverage their expertise and rely on them. I certainly have seen lots of companies outsource this process entirely to their occupational health department internally or to their third-party administrator, you know, who handles their leave administration process or their disability programs. So it, it makes sense that you'd leverage the processes that are already in place, the expertise of those that you have access to. And to the extent to your point that we're talking about employers who don't have the luxury of having those people on staff or at their disposal immediately, you know, yes, CIFARTH is helping interpret these medical request forms specific to the COVID experience and and the COVID vaccine. And then, you know, when clarification is warranted, helping employers communicate with their employees about the need for that clarification and then dealing with healthcare providers as necessary. Very interesting. And and I know, too, I think you mentioned this earlier in, in the episode about pregnancy and breastfeeding being sort of a, a hot topic in this field in terms of how employers are addressing, you know, employees that come forward and either say they're pregnant and or breastfeeding and can't get the vaccine when clearly, you know, the CDC guidelines, you know, might say otherwise. Is this medical condition been treated differently or addressed differently by employers and potentially other disabilities or or how are employers uh, handling or employees that come forward that say they're pregnant or breastfeeding and, and can't get the vaccine? Yeah, you know, I think that, again, this will depend a bit on the way an employer constructs its own process and how closely it's going to tether itself to the CDC contraindications. I think all employers that we're advising, I think, would, you know, participate in some amount of education around this issue because, as you say, the CDC has changed its own position. And therefore, many employers, I think, have as well. And whereas before they might have been more readily willing to grant, you know, an accommodation in this space, perhaps as a result of the CDC changing its position, they too, you know, are taking a second look at that or understanding that there might be widespread reluctance out there in the community about taking a vaccine that, you know, hasn't been around for all that long while pregnant. Many employers are taking that opportunity to educate their workforce about the fact that the CDC now is recommending the vaccine for pregnant folks and encouraging, of course, every individual to work with their own physician to address this issue for themselves. So again, it just emphasizes the point that this is an individualized process, that the interactive process is meant to be very particular to a particular human being and their medical condition and how it might or might not be able to be accommodated without an undue burden on the business. And we're, we're definitely seeing that in this pregnancy and breastfeeding space as well, and that the landscape has shifted a bit there too. 
many employers, I think, are granting deferrals until the pregnancy, you know, reaches its natural end. You know, that I think will depend on specific information being provided by, uh, you know, certifications for specific individuals and whether deferral on the pursuant to medical information provided by a treating physician warrants deferral in that instance. But we're certainly seeing a fair amount of that. And it's a little bit harder in the breastfeeding area because the temporal component is a bit less predictable. And of course, you know, someone might choose to breastfeed for five years and employers uh, may be, you know, less likely to grant an accommodation for that long. But we're definitely seeing, uh, you know, employers, even when approving requests, make it clear to employees that they reserve the right to revisit that approval over time, depending on changed circumstances in the business or with the disease out there in our world. And so we're seeing, I guess I would say I'm seeing some employers who are willing to grant some latitude in the breastfeeding space, but others who are taking a harder line. And again, this goes back to an individual employer's construct and, you know, their willingness to be guided by the CDC recommendations. Yeah, it's an, another another unique part of this whole process, for sure. Kristen, we heard during our last episode from our guest expert, Don Soloway, who I know works with you in Boston, all about how CIFARC is processing COVID-19 vaccine religious accommodation requests in the hundreds or even thousands for, for some clients. And I mean, that, that number still totally blows me away, by the way. You know, is there anything unique to the accommodation process for medical vaccine exception requests that employers should be doing or considering that they would not normally consider for other types of medical accommodation requests? You know, I guess I would say I would go back to the importance of leveraging your existing processes, relying on experts, and then what's unique perhaps is staying up to date with the CDC. And as you mentioned, as Meg mentioned at the outset of the episode, typically you're looking at the medical documentation that comes in from the treating physician and focused really on the four corners of that submission. And and what we're really encouraging employers to do here in this space is to take that request submission and all the supporting certifications and documents relating to the treating physician's assessment of an individual's medical condition, but also then weighing that in light of the CDC recommendations and guidance, which, you know, as Omicron recently has become a thing, you know, we can expect that the CDC will once again you know, address that and it might cause the landscape to shift under our feet once again. So here in this space, I think we are, you know, needing to stay up to date with that dynamic landscape. And that's a bit different than most other ADA accommodation processes that we've seen before. You know, I I guess the other thing that perhaps goes without saying, but under the ADA, if an individual has a qualifying disability that impacts a major life activity, and that's evident in the request that's been submitted, you know, then the employer needs to move on to consider whether that disabling condition can be accommodated under a direct threat analysis. And in this pandemic environment, we're seeing employers undertake that direct threat analysis regularly, which might be a bit new to some employers, but is very much a part of the ADA process. And that is really to consider whether a direct threat to the employee requesting the exemption or others exists. And that might be a dynamic analysis, you know, as we deal with another variant of this disease coming forward, that that very direct threat analysis might shift under our feet as well. 
But that analysis would require employers to consider the nature of the work. Are these people, you know, sitting at home in their kitchen or are they exposed to high risk people, elders and youth? You know, what is the nature of the work that they're doing? The direct threat analysis also requires employers to look at who do these folks have contact with? Are they working in public facing retail environments or in a closed office or in a bunch of cubicle farms? You know, where are they in healthcare doing patient care in the face of vulnerable populations? The direct threat analysis also requires, you know, employers to be looking at vaccination rates in their workplace and in the community surrounding that workplace and the effectiveness of other safety protocols that may be already in existence in the workplace and really analyze whether an accommodation can eliminate that direct threat. You know, is there a reasonable accommodation available that would allow that unvaccinated person to be in the workplace and not pose a direct threat to themselves or others? So I think what's unique, Josh, about this environment is that the landscape shifts under your feet as you go a bit. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's great, Kristen. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, thankfully, COVID has prepared us for a shifting landscape for about 20 months now. So we've got some experience with it, but it's never pleasant. Uh, and it yeah. keeps going, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Related to what you were saying at the end about the different reasonable accommodations that may be made or employers may not be able to make to mitigate the direct threat, we heard a little bit, again, last episode from Don about the different types of accommodations that could potentially be made for religious accommodation. Is there any additional considerations or anything different that goes into evaluating whether or not a reasonable accommodation can be made with somebody who has a medical reason or, or a disability and can't get the vaccine versus somebody with a sincerely held religious belief? Well, I guess I would just say the process is fundamentally the same as other disability-related accommodation requests under the ADA, so that nothing there has changed. But when you compare the ADA process to the Title VII process, it is unquestionably true that the undue hardship burden is higher under the ADA. So an employer has the burden to establish that it would be an undue hardship to grant the accommodation, and that burden is higher. So it's more than just a de minimis burden on the employer, a small cost or a de minimis burden that is non-monetary. There's really a, a requirement that an employer under the ADA establish that there's a significant burden on the business, and that that's the difference. It may not mean, so it's just a more stringent analysis than under Title VII. It may not mean that any of the accommodations that are really on the table are all that different, because I think that the common accommodations that we're seeing, masking, testing, social distancing, alternative work schedules, remote work, and even unpaid leave or you know transfers within the business you know are still sort of on the table but the burden assessed in providing an accommodation such as that is a bit higher on the employer in the ADA space than it would be when considering a religious accommodation of the sort that Don was talking about on episode 1 Mhm very, mm-hmm. very interesting Yeah absolutely and and you know an, another I mean wrinkle to the whole process Kristen Putting the federal standards aside, right, we also have state and local anti-discrimination laws involving disability that's on the table, too, depending on where you work. You know, understanding this is a broad set of laws that's at the state and local level, they can vary by jurisdiction based on the statutory language or administrative guidance or case law and so forth. How, just broadly speaking, the state and local anti-discrimination laws come into play here? Well, so I do think that, you know, it just does require a careful employer to take care to make sure that you're checking the boxes and doing your analysis in the most basically employee-friendly sphere. So by which I mean, you know, don't fail to appreciate that while you're focused on the ADA process and the federal law, you know, you might very well have 
anti-discrimination laws in your own jurisdiction or the jurisdiction in which the employee sits that need also to be taken into account. So whether that means the interactive process, you know, has more bells and whistles or is more stringent, is going to be analyzed differently you know, what accommodations are going to be considered reasonable, what that standard is for proving undue hardship. You know, all of these things might be influenced by local state law. And it's important for employers to not overlook that their process needs, their workflow and process map needs to take into account all of those nuances. And for a national employer, this is work because you're not tethering yourself to a single federal statute. You really do have to look at the jurisdiction in which the employee is working. And the other thing I suppose that's linked to is then how are the agencies going to respond if an employee takes a position that a denied request should have been approved. And there are certainly some agencies across our fine country that have set priorities for themselves in terms of the claims that they find sexy and the ones that they're going to enforce about. And interactive process and disability and disability accommodation are certainly at the top of some local agencies' lists. And so that just suggests that employers need to, you know, take care that they're aware that they complete their interactive process fully, that it is robust, that it is sound, and that they're tethering themselves not only to the federal law, but any state nuances that might need to be considered before concluding a decision on a particular medical request form. Speaking of a a single federal law or standard, I think raises an interesting point about the emergency temporary standard or the ETS that was published in early November and then the subsequent legal challenges, which is another ever shifting and moving and changing aspect of, I'm sure, your, your practice right now. How has that impacted your practice or how companies are dealing with and processing vaccine accommodation requests, specifically in the, in the medical space? Yeah, you know, so it it has, um, again, the landscape is shifting, just as you said, and it is causing many employers who are subject only to the ETS, meaning large employers with 100 or more employees, to the extent that they linked their vaccine mandate to that requirement, many of them have taken a breath and are crediting the fact that the Sixth Circuit has, you know, now has this litigation. The challenge resulted in a stay that was interpreted to be nationwide and therefore employers who have employees sitting in states that have themselves passed vaccine legislation are, you know, certainly taking a breath and and taking a minute on the rollout of their national vaccine mandate and making sure that they're focusing also on those state laws that may, if the OSHA ETS is upheld in court, be preempted. But until then, they're making sure that they're in compliance with local jurisdictions and state laws that may bear on the population of employees that they happen to employ. And, you know, on that point, I think it's really just a wait and see again. There's lots of shifting landscape out there. You know, I think it keeps it interesting. It's why we love what we do um, because it's, you know, a great time to be an employment lawyer. But I, I realize it's challenging for our clients and employers to navigate the shifting landscapes. You know, stay tuned. We'll certainly keep folks up to date on when where things stand. But you're right, Meg, right now, I think employers are taking care to make sure that they're attuned to all of those state nuances out there. There really is never a dull moment right now in our lives. <laughs> for sure. 
Yeah, and, and, and Kristen, you know, thank you really so much from both you know, Meg and myself and all of our listeners. You know, thank you for your time today, for giving us a, a quick glimpse into your expertise in this quickly evolving, shifting landscape of COVID vaccines and medical accommodation requests. We, we really, truly appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Our pleasure, of course. Thank you. And, and thanks to our listeners for joining us on today's Take It or Leave It episode. You know, we are looking forward to being with you all again very soon for our next episode.